Recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is Uncle Dan's Story Hour, featuring author and screenwriter Dan Wakefield, a master of the word, and host Will Higgins from the Indie Star. Uncle Dan's Story Hour is brought to you by Magnolia Pictures, distributors of the new James Baldwin documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, nominated for an Academy Award, and Taste of Havana Restaurant, Cuban Cuisine, right here in Indianapolis. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Glad you could make it to the fabulous Red Key Tavern. We have three very special guests this evening. Bill Hampton, newly elected into the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame and a member of the 1955 Crispus Attucks team that was the first black school to win a state championship in Indiana or anywhere else. We also have Ms. Pat Payne. She is Director of Racial Equality with the Indianapolis Public Schools and has taught at IPS for 54 years. And we also have Phyllis Boyd, who is the Executive Director of Groundwork Indy, a community and youth development nonprofit group in Indianapolis. We'll talk to them in the second half of the show, but for the first half, I will be talking to Dan Wakefield about Emmett Till. Emmett Till is back in the news 62 years later. There are several new movies in the works. A new book came out last year, and another one is coming out this year. And in the new book, A Revelation. The woman who claimed Emmett Till groped her recants her story. Emmett Till was the 14-year-old boy, African-American, from Chicago, who in the summer of 1955 traveled to the Mississippi Delta, to the town of Money, to visit his cousins. They went to a store in the one-horse town to buy bubble gum. And though details of exactly what happened remain sketchy, he probably wolf-whistled at the store's proprietor, a white woman named Carolyn Bryant. Later that week, in the middle of the night, Carolyn Bryant's husband and his half-brother dragged Emmett Till out of his uncle's house, out of his bed, and took him away. Till's mutilated body was found three days later in the Tallahatchie River. He'd been shot in the head, and one of his eyes had been gouged out. The kidnappers were charged. There was a trial. The entire nation watched. Dan Wakefield watched from up close. He covered the trial for The Nation magazine. Dan was one of the dozens of journalists who descended on the tiny county seat of Sumner, Mississippi to record what happened. After a week of testimony, the all-white jury deliberated for 45 minutes before coming back with a verdict of not guilty. Today, the murder of Emmett Till is considered the touchstone for the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks would not give up her seat on that Montgomery, Alabama bus for another three months. In at least one interview, Parks said she was motivated not to give up her seat to a white person, at least partly out of a sense of duty to Emmett Till. Dan Wakefield is believed to be the last person alive who attended the trial. Such staying power. <clears throat> Dan, let me ask you, uh, considering that blacks had been in, lynched in the South for at least a century, why was this case of such interest to the nation? 
This was the first case after the 1954 Supreme Court decision of desegregating the public schools. And it, after that decision, Brown versus Board of Education, after that decision came out for the Supreme Court, it was like the whole country was holding its breath waiting to see what's gonna happen next. Everybody knew or sensed there would be some form of racial conflict or violence and the Emmett Till trial suddenly hit and that became the floodgates of everything that happened, became the beginning of the civil rights movement, became the beginning of the national awareness of what had been going on in the South for all those years and people accepting it, thinking it was just fine. And I think it's come back in the news now because of the last few years of police shootings of black men, including young teenage black boys. And um, I really think that's brought Emmett Till's trial back into the news. Oh, yeah, we remember that. That's what uh, began all this, or that's what first made people aware of all this. The, um, his body was brought back to Chicago, where his mother made the unusual decision to have an open casket. This is for a, a badly disfigured corpse, and tens of thousands of people filed by to have a look, and photographs of Emmett Till were published in Jet Magazine. How important was that, do you think, in galvanizing public opinion? I think it was very important because it turns out, and this didn't even come up at the trial, but the evidence is pretty heavy that Emmett Till was tortured before he was killed, and the disfigurement, there is an actual hatchet mark on his head. She wanted shown the brutality that was shown to this given, administered to this 14-year-old boy to wake people up to what was happening. Well, let me ask you a professional question. How did you get this assignment? Here you were right out of college. You're 25, just five years 23. out. 23. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, if you had been 25 then, that would make you really old now. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, here you were just five years out of Shortridge High School, and you get this gig to cover the biggest story in the country for The Nation magazine. How did that come about? Well, it was a real fluke, uh, one of the great lucky breaks of my life. I had come to be friends of uh, Murray Kempton, who was an outstanding columnist for the New York Post. And I had showed him some of my writing, although I'd never been published. And the Nation magazine asked him to write about the Till trial, but he was going there for the New York Post. And he said, I don't want to try to write something for two different publications. So he somehow, I've never known quite what he must have said or what influence he used to con them into getting me to write the story. Now, when I went to the nation, 
to get my, as it were, payment, I could tell that the managing editor was not at all happy about this arrangement. It hadn't been his decision. But my payment was a round-trip bus ticket from New York City <laughs> to Sumner, Mississippi. And I got to tell you, that mother came out like an accordion. I mean, it, it stopped in every little town along the way. I think it took two days and nights for me to get there. But that was my pay, and, and I was happy to do it. I just wanted to get there. In fact, uh, this is either a sad or happy thing. I think my first sentence that I wrote was probably the best sentence I've ever written. And I've written a lot of sentences since. But I can tell you right now, I can still remember that sentence. And the first sentence was, this Delta town is back to its silent, solid life that is based on cotton. And the proposition that a whole race of men was created to pick it. The experience of being there was quite unique. I, I will certainly never forget it. One of the things was that people gathered outside the courthouse, and I wanted to remember what that was like. The, the crowd itself segregated itself. The uh, Negroes, as that was the term then, gathered in one part, and the white people gathered in another part, and the Negroes gathered around a statue of a Confederate soldier. And it said on the statue, he died for the cause that, that never failed. The, um, uh, the, from what I've read of the trial, they at least put on a show of justice. I mean, I think it was one of the rare times that a black man, this would have been his uncle, Mose Wright, testified against white men and uh, did quite a good convincing job of, of that, with that testimony. Did you feel that it was for real when you were during the week of testimony? Well, that, that was the most dramatic point of the trial when uh, Emmett Till's grandfather, Mose Wright, stood up and without any hesitation or break in his voice pointed to the two men who had come to his house that night and said, we want the boy from, from Chicago and had taken him away. He stood up and pointed at Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam and he said, those were the men, they came to the house, they took the boy away. And a lot of the, the local white people didn't think he would do that. They didn't think Moe's right would have the courage to stand up and do that. And uh, it was really a dramatic point in the trial. What was the jury selection like? Did that take a while, or did they just take the first 12 white men that signed? Yeah, I, I, that didn't take any time at all. They just pointed to the guys and came up. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, there's an excellent new book. The, the man who interviewed me called me about four or five years ago, and he said, uh, I hope uh, you don't mind. I, I know a lot of people must have bothered you, but writing this book about Emma Till, I kind of have to call you because you're the only person who was at the trial who's still alive. So I must say he got everything right. 
I looked through all the quotes, everything was right. But one thing he interpreted wrong, I had told him that one, on a break during the trial, uh, Murray Kempton, the reporter from the New York Post, went over to one of the murderers, J.W. Milam, who was the biggest and most threatening looking of the two guys. And uh, it was one of those almost every day was in the 90s or 100 outside, no air conditioning. Everybody was soaked in sweat. But Kempton went over and just said uh, to Milam, uh, hot enough today for you, J.W.? And Milam said, hot enough to make a man feel mean. And in the book, the author reported that, and he said, Milam barked hard enough to make a man feel mean. I said, no, he didn't bark or yell. He sort of oozed it out, which was much more threatening, you know. And, and he was, uh, it was almost like he was saying, yeah, I'm a mean guy, and yeah, I did it. How did the locals treat you, Dan? You're there for the week. You're spending the, you're staying in a, a local rooming house, walking around town, interviewing people. I presume. How did they, um, how did they take to you? Well, I was so naive. I actually went up and knocked on people's doors and said, "Hi, I'm from the Nation magazine in New York. Uh, what do you think about all this?" <laughs> and they, they just politely closed the door. But. Uh, I, These are white uh, people you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, and uh, But the, the real experience I had, again, uh, my naivete was so great that I heard that two of the sheriff's deputies were going to another town in Mississippi to interview a man who was a witness uh, who was in jail in a town called Itabina. And so I asked if I could go with them, because I thought maybe I could interview this guy who was a black man who had, was in jail. I, I think nobody ever knows what happened to that guy. But anyway, these two sheriff deputies said, yeah, sure, ball, we'll give you a ride. So I got in the car with them. We drove about five miles out of Sumner they stopped the car, said, this is where you get out, boy. So I got out, and uh, I had to walk back to Sumner. It was right as the sun was going down. And Murray Kempton said, later, you're lucky all they did was tell you to walk back to the town. But for the first time, I walked back and saw where the black people lived in these tar paper shacks. And as usually the case in cities or even in little towns, black section is separated off so that the white people don't even see it. And that was the case here in Sumner that I accidentally got to see that section because of them, what they did. Did you explore that section then? No, I just wanted to get into my room in the rooming house. I didn't, I didn't want to explore anything at that point. Well, I, I know you sympathized with the, with the state that they were in, with African Americans were in, in the South in the 50s. 
But could you, growing up a middle-class kid in Indianapolis, could you put yourself in their shoes fully at that time? Uh, no, I, I don't think that I ever had, but the, could. But the closest was in uh, when I was in Montgomery, Alabama, during the bus boycott, and I had found two young young boy and girl who were active in the civil rights movement, white kids, and they took me at my request to a white citizens council meeting. And you know, the white citizens council was supposed to be this sort of upper class clan. Uh, they were supposed to be the, the clan in business suits instead of hoods. So anyway, I went to this meeting and I had my notebook and I was taking notes. And after the meeting, I started walking out with these two young people. And four or five guys came up to me and started yelling at me. And they said, we know who you are. You're not wanted here. We know who you are. And I turned around and said, well, I'll tell you who I am. I'm Dan Wigley. They said, no, oh, no, we don't care. We know who you are. And we went out to our car, which with the kid's car was a VW. And the, the boys sat in the driver's seat, and the girl got in back. And so I was getting in the seat next to the driver's seat and shut the door, but the window was open. And so one of these guys reaches in and starts grabbing at me, wants to get my notebook, and he grabs and, you know, tore my sport coat. And, you know, it's really a different feeling when they somebody's got their hands on you. And what occurred to me, what, what I felt was like, you know, you know, they don't know who I am. They don't want to know who I am. They're not attacking me because of um, Dan Wakefield or I went to Shortridge or anything. I just stand for something. I'm a symbol of something. And, and of course, I realized that black people are a symbol of something to all these white people who want to take out their frustration and, and ignorance on them. And it, it, was a, it was a weird feeling. It was just a small incident of just really more symbolic than anything, but I felt I understood a little more from it. So then you come home after the trial. I mean, you got the heck out of there fast after the trial, is my understanding. And then you were back in New York City, and you seek out James Baldwin. Um, tell us about that conversation. Well... Ball, James Baldwin I had met uh, in the White Horse Tavern where the writers gathered. In those days, the, the bars in, New York, in the village were segregated not by color, but by uh, which, what, what you did. Whether you were, if you were a writer, you went to the White Horse. If you were a painter, you went to the Cedar Bar. Nobody ever crossed the lines. The one place everybody went was uh, the Five Spot, which was the jazz place. And writers, artists, anybody went there. But uh, I met Baldwin and I, uh, in the White Horse. He had a book out called Notes of a Native Son. And... I had read the book, and the, the book had his face on the cover. 
and I had loved the book, and the introduction of the book ended with an autobiographical note, and the last sentence was, I want to be an honest man and a good writer. I thought, wow, you can't do any better than that. So when I saw him, I recognized him from his face on the cover, and I just went over to him, introduced myself, and I said, I'm a writer. And at that time, I was writing a book about uh, the Puerto Rican section of Harlem, Spanish Harlem. And he was very interested, and he invited me back to his apartment. And I used to go over there in the afternoons and talk and drink bourbon and listen to jazz records. And three or four other people would come around. And finally, when there got to be six or seven people, he would take us all across the street to a Spanish restaurant called El Faro. And he, even though he had hardly any money at the time, he would write a check and buy everybody's dinner. But anyway, when I came back from Mississippi, I was anxious to tell him about it. And so I remember one of the things I said was, but you know, I said, Jimmy, the amazing thing was the people in the town didn't think it was strange or they didn't think it was wrong. The murderers had been set free. And he said, you mean the white people in the town? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. I mean, that was <laughs> one of my first basic educations. But Baldwin was a great figure, not only for that era, I, I think still today, but he, he was he was controversial in many ways, and uh, he took part in the civil rights movement, but he was very torn because he was such a good speaker, and uh, he, he, he wanted to take part in that, but he also worried about it taking him away from his writing. But uh, since Baldwin was such a good speaker, he was wanted in that, and we're lucky enough to have a little uh, cut of him speaking, uh, which I'd love you to hear right now. I picked the coffee, and I carried it to market, and I built the railroads under someone else's whip for nothing. For nothing, the Southern oligarchy, which has until today so much power in Washington, and therefore some power in the world, was created by my labor and my sweat, and the violation of my women and the murder of my children. If one has got to prove one's title to the land, isn't 400 years enough? 400 years, at least three wars. The American soil is full of the corpses of my ancestors. Why is my freedom or my citizenship or my right to live there, how is it conceivably a question now? That's, uh, he was in a debate with William F. Buckley, but that's just kind of a sample of 
the power of his speaking. And I want to say also, he had a great sense of humor. And one of my favorite of his interviews, he was interviewed on television, very serious guy. He started out saying, uh, Mr. Baldwin, uh, you were born black, poor, and homosexual. Did you feel you had three strikes against you? And Baldwin said, why no? I thought I'd hit the jackpot. <laughs> uh, he, he was really an amazing guy. And uh, in Greenwich Village, of that most liberal of all places, he was beat up one night being in an Irish bar and sitting with a white woman friend. So even in Greenwich Village, the blacks were not safe in the 1950s. And as we all know, Miles Davis was beat up uh, standing outside of a jazz club in Midtown. So, so the North didn't really need to be so uh, morally superior as they felt over the South. I think we've got a uh, some musical interlude coming up. You might want to introduce this uh, Charles Mingus song that Sophie's going to play. Yeah, uh, first of all, Sophie fought our great saxophone player that we're very lucky to have. She chose a song that was written by Charlie Mingus, the great bass player who had his own group, and I was lucky enough to hear him at the five spot, and he was very serious about his music as art. If he found people talking, he stopped the performance. I remember he sometimes ushered people out of the five spot if they weren't listening. And uh, he composed a song called Fables for Faubus. And Orville Faubus was the governor of Arkansas in the 1950s, and when school desegregation came to Little Rock High School, Faubus made his great stand and called in the Arkansas National Guard to prevent the black children from going to Little Rock High School. So then President Eisenhower federalized the National Guard and had them protect the children. Faubus, in his defiance, shut down Little Rock High School for an entire year. White and black and every student were, were all deprived of their education for a year. So Sophie is gonna play the song that Mingus wrote, Fables for Faubus. Thank you. 
You're listening to Uncle Dan's Story Hour with author Dan Wakefield and host Will Higgins from the Indy Star. Our guests are Hall of Famer Bill Hampton, Pat Payne, the IPS Racial Equity Director, and Phyllis Boyd, Director of Groundworks Indy. Ladies and gentlemen, we're honored to have with us tonight Bill Hampton, who has just been inducted into the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. as a member of the starting guard on the famous Oscar Robertson team that won the 1955 state championship here, was the first state championship by school from Indianapolis, by any black high school in Indiana or in the United States, as it turned out. So we wanna, in his honor, we're all gonna sing the crazy song, which was the song that addicts and their fans and then everybody in the city joined in. Once addicts was ahead by 10 or 15 points, they could sing, they would sing the crazy song. So Sophie is going to lead us on that. Okay, let's go. state and and one of them was that your team for the first time got to go to a uh, white downtown restaurant that's correct we had our state championship dinner celebration if you will at Fendricks downtown there's one of the exclusive restaurants downtown they laid out the red carpet for us and we had quite a meal and then you got to go to a movie downtown. Yes, that was uh, sort of bittersweet because you you have to remember now, we're talking about the 50s. And when we went downtown to a movie, you would sit upstairs in a balcony because they didn't want want us sitting downstairs. Like you give give it and take it back. Uh, You get to go to the movie, but you have to sit in the balcony. So as I understand it, you were, after that, happier uh, eating in the restaurants like Barbecue Heaven in your own neighborhood and going to your own movies like at the Madam Walker. Oh, yes, that's where you're most comfortable. I mean, that's just human nature. You go where you want it, and you 
go outside in your domain, you just felt a little out of place. But when we ate in our own community, we're just more comfortable and you're surrounded with people that know you and you know them and uh, that's where your support factor came from. So uh, you were always felt better in Is your the, own neighborhood. That restaurant, the fancy one that you went to when you won the state, I mean, is that a place that you, you could not have walked into or that you would not have walked into? Well, okay, primarily you would not have walked into, well, a combination of both because we didn't venture downtown very much because, as I said, you if you're not wanted someplace and you know that, a dog can tell you he's not comfortable, he'll just stay away. And so uh, we were not comfortable downtown. We were... We had enough restaurants and things in our own area, and uh, and and people liked us. Uh, when we when we played basketball, you could go to restaurants and things in our own area, and they wouldn't ask you to pay because they knew who you were, and that was our support group. And they just they enjoyed having you around. Uh, Christmas Addicts was something. Uh, the basketball team was something that they could hang their hats on that they could look up to. And so uh, we would always pretty much stay in our own, uh, our own neighborhood. Well, you know, it's, it's, it to me illustrates the ignorance that comes from, from not knowing, from segregation, really. And there was a very good documentary done by WFYI-TV called Indy in the 50s. And a lot of different people were interviewed, and you know, they ask questions and you, you didn't know how your question was going to be cut or appear. So the beginning of that thing, I'm the first one shown and I say, oh, yeah, downtown. We loved to go downtown when I was in high school. That was a big deal. The very next cut is Oscar Robertson saying we were afraid to go downtown. And I was shocked because I had no idea that because... We didn't know. We had no idea because we were really, literally segregated. So it didn't. So I knew all this stuff about the South and Mississippi. I didn't know anything about my own hometown. Of course, I wasn't living here then either. But anyway, but the one other thing I think was so fascinating reading about those times was that when addicts went to the, the little towns and who had never seen a, a black person before. And they had to go to play in these little towns because in the first, before they became champions, the Indianapolis schools didn't want to play them. So Oscar Robertson wrote in, in his autobiography, he said, you know, sometimes going to those little towns where they'd never seen a black person, said it was like they, they were regarded us like people from outer space and they just lined up and stared at us and it must have been kind of weird. Well, you know, first of all, when you just, you just made up your mind about people, don't know who they are, don't know where they come from, don't know anything about them, that's the epitome of ignorance. You just don't, you just don't turn around and say, You just don't turn around and say, I don't like you simply because I don't like the color of your skin. I don't like where you came from. To compound that, 
They hate it because we beat them. But in the heat of all of that, and you build up your emotions, and you say, well, I don't like, get out of town, be glad when they're gone. And here I find out 62 years later that they say, well, you know, you guys were really good. You're kidding. Wait, you, wait, you ran in, you've run into players that you played against years ago, and they, and they remember you, and, then, and they're nice to you? Oh, I, I run into a lot of players that, uh, that I uh, played against years ago. And uh, we became friends. I find that the majority of the people that we have problems with were not the players themselves. It was the people out of the stands. I mean, there were people out of the stands that just, they, let me tell you something, they did not want you to win. My thing is, you didn't want us to win, and you didn't want us to see us win, you'd do one of two things, close your eyes or go home. <laughs> <laughs> but the ball players themselves, you were playing, guarding you on the court and standing right next to you and in your face, were they trash talking or were they decent people? Did well, they respect you as athletes? Oh, they respected us somewhat. But, you know, when you trash talk, you got to have something to trash talk about. And if you stand up there and you're behind and you trash talk, you know something's wrong with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And then I want to, uh, as Pat Payne, who has been 54 years with the Indianapolis public school system, and is now leading a, a new effort uh, in racial equality. And, and tell us what you're doing to, to do that. First of all, it's not racial equality, it's racial equity. Okay. Those two are, 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 are very different. Um, we are, it is not just a pet pain thing for once. That has usually been what has happened since I've been with the district for so very long. I started out as an elementary teacher, taught second grade for 25 years, and then got very sick and tired of using books and curricula that did not reflect the children that I was teaching and certainly didn't prepare them for the society in which they were supposed to thrive and be productive and so we started a little movement it doesn't take too much to start a movement it just takes oh at least 10 like-minded people right-minded people also and so out of that came the office of multicultural education which um, the then superintendent dr james adams was his name asked me to come out of the classroom and start that office, and out of that has grown the Office of Racial Equity. And so we have 19 pilot schools. This effort just started in the late 2015, and we just added more pilot schools. And this is a two-day training that everyone on the staff in these schools goes through. We don't allow them to talk about any ism but racism because we feel that racism, that's the bookends that holds all the other isms together. And so we want teachers and other members of the staff to feel comfortable 
talking about this. It is not until you feel comfortable having conversations about this that you are going to be able to see change happen. And so out of this experience, we want teachers to be able to question why black children are always at the bottom of the academic scale. Why is it that they come out of the womb as geniuses, but the farther along they get in the society and in the school, something, something very ugly happens. And so their full potential is not realized because when you are thinking, first of all, that all black people are poor, which isn't true, but when you are thinking that poverty and low performance are synonymous, then that's the way you're gonna act in the classroom. So we are very, very happy. I am personally happy to see this finally happening in our school district as a district initiative. This is a board initiative. This is a superintendent initiative. And we think some very, very positive things are gonna come out of it, not only for the school district, but for the community. Because if things go well in the school district, then it's also gonna happen in the community. Yeah, that's great. I'm really glad. And I know that having done that workshop that it distinguishes between racial prejudice and racism. And that racial prejudice, if you don't like somebody of a different race, but racism is built in structural to the structure of this nation. Yeah. And that's what people are not aware of and have to be aware of to make yeah. any change. And it's very different from individual yes. prejudice. Yes. And we always likened it to the fish in the water. People are so busy trying to take care of the fish that they aren't looking at the water, the poisonous water in which the fish yeah. are floating. Yeah, thank you. Phyllis Boyd has an interesting story. Do you want to talk about Carol Jenkins? Yeah, so um, Carol Jenkins was a, a cousin of my father and my aunt who actually attended Attics. My father graduated in 1950, the same year, Dan, that you graduated from Shortridge, correct? Yeah. Right after he graduated, he uh, joined the Air Force. And um, while he was away in 1968, Carol was in Martinsville and was murdered. She's an African-American young woman. She was 21. And she was murdered because she was black. Two men saw her, stopped her, and murdered her. She was selling encyclopedias right. door to door. She was selling encyclopedias door to door, got separated from uh, the three other youth workers that she was down there with, and um, was attacked. As I understand it, the town of Martinsville was going to make some memorial for her and then decided against it, or what was that? The night that all this happened, she, when she got lost and she was being followed by these two men in a car, she sought refuge at a house, and the house happened to be um, this young couple who took her in, tried to help her out, and uh, actually the young wife went with Carol to walk around and try to find her colleagues. They never found them. Uh, they 
parted ways and they tried actually to convince Carol to go back to the house with them and spend the night and she's like, no, no, I'll find them. And she didn't. So this um, young couple actually, I think, spearheaded the um, effort to have a memorial for her. It had gone through the process of almost getting approved and then uh, it was denied. You know, there was some public pushback about it. Phyllis worked with children in her organization. She's the executive director of Groundworks Indy. So tell us how that, how you help children there. We employ youth to work on community-based projects, and we're focused in the northwest area of Indianapolis. Um, those of you that know it know it's primarily an African American community. It's been hit uh, over the years with a lot of disinvestment. So there's a lot of vacancy, vac abandoned buildings, vacant lots. At, at one time, I don't know, Dan, if you ever went there, but the Riverside Amusement Park was a key feature over there. It's right at the top of Riverside Park. That used to be a hot spot in the city, but it didn't allow black people until about 68 or so. And then once it was forced to integrate, soon after it closed. Most people are familiar with the term white flight, where as African-Americans would move into an area, whites would decide that they did not want to live in proximity to them, and so they would move out to the suburbs. And in a lot of cities, urban areas, um, the investment in the urban core declined and investments were made for development in the, in the suburbs. And so you have um, today an area that suffered from redlining where people weren't able, black people weren't able to get loans for uh, mortgages. The, the course of the interstate, as in many cities, followed the location of these redlined areas. And so then, to adding insult to injury, you have destruction of homes, uh, uh, gutting of neighborhoods, and then this highway coming through that separates communities even more. So the area that we're fo focused on working, we do projects where basic things, I mean, we, we clean up trash. There's not a lot of labor or city budget to deal with the amount of trash and a lot of it's illegal dumping and it's not people in the neighborhood that are doing it it's folks contractors coming in from outside avoiding the the landfill fees and and because there is some vacancy coming in at night and dumping loads of construction debris and other things we plant trees we make beautiful gateways uh, so basically work in the built environment that helps to um, make the area more beautiful for everyone. And the part of the work that we do isn't just about having the, the kids work on the projects, but it's about helping them understand why the area looks the way it does. It wasn't the fault of their parents. It's not the fault of their grandparents. It's the system of um, basically structural racism and institutional racism that has created neighborhoods that look a lot like this all over the country. Yeah, and, and I remember you and I were once when we, uh, Bill was there too, when we tried to show Betsy's movie about the addicts team, and the, and there was a discussion afterwards, somebody said something about redlining, and a, a man said, "Oh, that's that's all gone. That doesn't exist anymore." So a lot of white people have decided that's all done, but it's done in a different way now. Yeah, it's right. done in a different way. I mean, you know, the we are still a segregated city. I wondered, Pat, is, is there any black history being taught in Indianapolis public schools? <laughs> you just asked me that, didn't you? We were just talking yeah. about that. Uh, not the way it should be taught. And we have given them all of the uh, resources 
I mean, we've got the Christmas Addicts Museum sitting yeah. right there that's been there since 1998. But if you don't have the mindset to teach this history and do it right, I mean, if you don't believe it in the first place, yeah. then you aren't going to teach it uh, correctly. Yeah. So that's been one of the primary efforts coming out of, of our office to to make sure that this information is available so that it can be taught. And that's part of, of what this racial equity yeah. uh, training is doing also. And the other part about this training that we think is very important is that we never have a session without also including people from community organizations because racism is this insidious strand that runs through all institutions. It is so structural, it is, <laughs> and it can transform itself at any whim. And so, in fact, we have training for the next four days, and there will be representatives from IMPD who will join us in that effort. We have representatives from housing. We have representatives from health because it's everywhere. I think the city also, when you look at what's happening in the schools, when you think about the potential of students and the, and the kids that I work with, some of them are reading below grade level. Their teachers don't expect a lot of them, That's but when right. they come and work with us, we expect a lot. Our expectations are high and they meet them. So I think there's a, there's a loss in our city for uh, really taking advantage of the incredible uh, brain power and the creativity of um, our kids here. And maybe some people don't know, but one in three children in our city is born in poverty. That's a horrible statistic, and we need to change that. Let me just ask Bill. I, I've been curious, because Bill, when you were winning the state title in 1955, it was just uh, months later was the Emmett Till thing. Were you aware of that? Did you, uh, did you follow that trial? Were you aware of what happened? And what did you think? And did you change your behavior because of it? Well, not as much at that particular time. But, you know, that, I mean, that was, my goodness, that was all over the country, mm -hmm. what had happened there. And uh, you think about the impact that it had. But, you know, yes, I, I think about it. Uh, and if it's buried, and it's great that it's coming up today because it's something that needs to be addressed. You know, the Emmett Till situation could happen tomorrow all over again if we're not educated to the fact that there is racism. There are people, as we sit here, as we speak, out there practicing something to do. I mean, we're held hostage. We are literally held hostage right now by racism. And if we don't address it, if we don't turn around and try to do something about it, it's simply going to grow. Did I know about it? Yes, but everybody else in the country knew about it. Things like that are beginning to happen all over the country, and uh, it's, it's, it's like it's commonplace anymore. And why? Because it's ignorance. We're not being educated to the things that we need to do to wipe out something like that. Well, Emmett Till is today. Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, that's today. That is yeah. the modern day lynching. Right. 
and we have state-sanctioned killing, murdering of innocent people. That's, that's happening today. That's the relevance, and it's not, uh, it's not hyperbole to say that. You know, and the ignorance is about, and those of you that have done any kind of work in um, thinking about racism and learning about it, is implicit bias, right? Mm -hmm. Implicit bias rooted in fear, and so you have someone that sees a black person, and all they can think is, I'm afraid. They're a threat without ever really questioning that, that thought that comes up, that feeling that comes up. And that's part of the ignorance today. That's a huge part. That's a, the that's a part that is killing people. I think a lot of people think that it's black people that have to, that this is our problem and we're the ones that are gonna have, but that's just not true. It, first of all, it's everybody's problem, but I think it's white people's problem also. If you would just look around and think, if they had a choice, and that's what people got to realize from day one, you don't have a choice. No one said when you were going to come here, and no one says when you're going to leave. No one turn around and says you are black, or you're going to be white. Are you going to be red? It's not your call. That's done by a higher being. And if you say, raise your hand as to how many people that are white would like to be black, and to be truthful, what's going to, what's going to happen is you're not going to have nearly as many hands. No, you're not going to have any hands. Okay. But then you know what? That's not bad because what I just got through saying, it wasn't your call. But could you, under the circumstances, could you survive under the things that our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents had to do come along? I don't think so. I know I couldn't, and I couldn't stand up under that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing, I, I, I know one of the politicians said something about, uh, or commentators, uh, something about, oh, well, like, why do they keep bringing up slavery? Just if you imagine that your great-grandfather and great-grandmother were sold to somebody else, and their children were sold for money to somebody else to another place, and you'd never see them again. That's right. Could you possibly conceive of that? And what that would leave you feeling, it's, it's really almost impossible to grasp. But if you really try to think about that, your own grandfather, your own great-grandfather, that idea, it's almost beyond your imagination. That's it's right. 12 generations, so it's not just great-grandfather, great-great. It's great-great-great-great-great-great-great. How many of you can count back 12 generations? Yeah. That's how long it lasted. And there's a connected line between that and where we are today with things like mass incarceration. It's not, it, and, and for those of you, there's a lot to it, so I can't go in on the details, but just read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Yes. Very well documented. The She's a legal Jim scholar. Crow. Fantastic mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. It's part of our DNA. Well. I tell you, I, I know that talk is cheap, but at least 
1950, we couldn't be having this talk. <laughs> so uh, that's some yeah. little scrap of it's some It's nice to end thing. on an up note. Yeah, I, that's what I'm struggling for. Bruce threw a brick through that window out there. Yeah. Conversation is very, very important. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you're having one. It really is. Yeah. Just to get people talking together. Yeah. It's very yeah. important. And especially if you can get them talking and having a drink. So, <laughs> at the Red Key. At the Red Key. The legendary Red Key Tavern of Indianapolis. I think that's thank a you. good ending. Thank you. We'll end on that. Yeah. Thank you. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana. For tickets and information on future Story Hour events, visit redkeytavern.com. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was made possible in part by Magnolia Pictures, Taste of Havana Restaurant, and faithful listeners like you. A special thanks to Uncle Dan, author Dan Wakefield. Special thanks to The Neon Sign for guiding the way to the Red Key. Host Will Higgins from the Indie Star, creative consultant and writer. Special guests Bill Hampton, Pat Payne, and Phyllis Boyd. Co-producers Pat Chastain and Michael Fairwechter. And thanks to Dolly, Jim, and Leslie Settle, Violet Walker, and the great staff at the Red Key Tavern. Our fantastic recording engineer is Steve McQuarrie. Our graphic artist is the talented Sarah Bushman. The WFYI program director is the awesome Roxana Caldwell. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was created by Dan Wakefield and Michael Fairwechter.